I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, April 2nd, 2012, Holy Week. Unless, of course, you're in a seeker-driven church, then it might be an unholy week. Oh, man. I think I won my bet, by the way. I can bet? Details here in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of bizarre, crazy, silly things being said about God. And really, it comes down to the fact that uh, people are somehow thinking that they're receiving direct revelation from God, apart from his word. As a result of it, they're being led into just all kinds of silliness. So we kind of cover a lot of that here and draw you back to that written word, that thing that we can trust. Over the weekend, uh, somebody tweeted me. I had sent out something, you know, kind of a hit, you know, hitting this concept, you know, straight up. And somebody had, you know, e- tweeted me and asked the question, well, well, when when does the Holy Spirit speak? I mean, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And it's like, uh, okay, listen, um, you, you are aware that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired, literally inspired all of Scripture to be written. All Scripture is God-breathed. So here's the deal. I know that God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking loudly and clearly when God's word is being properly preached, rightly handled, boldly proclaimed, correctly taught. You you understand what I'm saying? God, the Holy Spirit at that point is speaking loud and clear to me as as if he's got a bullhorn in his hand and it's, he's got that thing cranked up to the full volume. It's right there in my face. 
I know God the Holy Spirit is speaking when his word, his word is being rightly preached. And listen, it is an ordeal to try to figure out if those internal voices are God. I mean, oh man, call me a lazy Christian, but seriously, uh, um, when it comes to trying to figure out if uh, you know something internal is, is God speaking to me, you know, I, I recently was rereading um, Bill Hybel's book, Whispers. And I was thinking that it was working, and then I realized, oh, man, my clock radio was on. You know, it's it's just one of those things. And I was like, ah, you know, how do I know if it's not the clock radio, if I'm not going crazy, maybe it's low blood sugar, maybe I've had too much exposure to the sun, and, and, and Don Quixote style, my, my brain has been melted or something to that effect. I mean, so, you know, here's the deal. It's like... Since we're supposed to test everything anyway by God's word, what do I need all that other stuff for? I mean, seriously. I mean, if I've got to test everything against the word of God, I mean, why don't I just skip a step and just stick with the source? The thing that I, you understand what I'm saying here? Anyway, <laughs> oh man. So, um, okay, so it's it's Monday. It's Holy Week. Yesterday was Palm Sunday, unless, of course, you're attending a church that, well... Um, doesn't recognize such things like, you know, the week leading into Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, you know, and so instead those things get kind of honorable mention. And uh, we cover those churches, by the way. Um, Just so you know, okay, every single year since we've started fighting for the faith, every year when Easter rolls around, we have a tradition here. It's a tradition that, uh, well does seem to upset some people. But that being the case, we're not going to let that dissuade us from doing it. Um, What we do is we gather up nominees for the worst Easter sermon for that year, and then we play those sermons. So here's the idea. If you would like me to consider a particular pastor's Easter sermon for the worst Easter sermon of the year contest that we hold every year here at Fighting for the Faith, then you need to email me. And uh, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and make the subject line say, Worst Easter Sermon Nominee. It's plain and simple. If you if Worst Easter Sermon Nominee, you can even put it in all uh, all caps if you want. That way it sticks out. And what what we're going to do is we're going to collect up and screen and then whittle down to maybe five to seven contestants. It just depends. Like uh, one year we had we, – we, we played two contestants in one day. They were two short liberal uh, – from mainline liberal denomination homilies. And here's the idea, okay? Um, I work from this really, really bizarre kind of old school um, concept, premise if you would – that all right so being that Jesus's death on the cross his burial and his victorious bodily resurrection from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate is the the central miracle if you would series of events that ha- have taken place that we point to as Christians okay uh, seriously, if, if you know, if Christ hasn't been crucified for our sins, we're still dead in our sins. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we're still dead in our sins. All basically everything hangs, everything hangs on Jesus's vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross and bodily resurrection from the grave. 
That being the case, it is the, 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 the most important, nothing even comes close, things that we should be preaching, teaching, confessing, boldly proclaiming, letting the world know about. I mean, this is a big deal, okay, in Christianity. And one of the things I noticed early on when I was doing Fighting for the Faith is as I was reviewing the Easter sermons from a lot of the churches we normally review sermons from here at Fighting for the Faith, there there was a pattern that emerged that was rather um, alarming, somewhat disturbing, rather frustrating. Um, There's a lot of different adverbs that I can throw into the mix here, but you get what I'm saying here. And and, and what I found is is that it kind of goes something like this. Welcome to big box, you know, life-changing type church. Um, it's Easter Sunday. Let's give Jesus a hand for rising from the dead today. Yay. Thank you, Jesus. That was awful nice of you. Now, if you will get out your fill-in-the-blank notes, we're going to talk about how to do better parenting. I, it, it, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I, I noticed was happening. I'm thinking, you what? Serious. You call yourself a Christian church and... The only thing that Jesus' death on the cross, his burial and bodily resurrection from the grave gets on the Sunday that we recognize the resurrection is a yay, Jesus? You have got to be kidding me. So I mean that that was what, you know that's the thing, the pattern that I noticed you know when I was first doing this and I thought yeah you know we're gonna have to do something about this and so as a way of drawing attention to the problem um, as a means of pointing out the, raising my hand and going excuse me hang, hang on a second here um yeah that's my hand up in the air pick me pick me pick yeah that's me oh all right not gonna talk to me fine I'll I'll say it anyway we need to be talking about Christ. Sunday after Sunday, and doubly, triply so on, well, the Resurrection Sunday. And uh, people look at me like, what? We can't do that. That's not relevant. You know, we got, we got, we got a church to grow here, and you want us to do talk about a bloody crucifixion. Oh, oh, oh yuck. And, and Christ's bodily resurrection from the grave? Come on. You don't want us to be on a step with the current culture, do you? Yeah, actually, I do, because um, you call yourself a Christian church. So anyway, that's that's the idea here, is, is that that's why every year when the Easter rolls around, here's how the order goes, okay? So this is Holy Week, okay? You got Monday, Thursday coming up, Good Friday coming up, which, by the way, I, I want to let you know, Good Friday... Uh, will be a, uh, a probably a best of edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just want to let you all know that. So, um, you know, that that's just the way it is. So, you know, with the with all the other things going on, that's kind of the thing. So, um, so this will be a, a shorter week this week. But uh, so we got Good Friday, you got uh, you know Holy Saturday, and then you know Easter or Resurrection Sunday, Jesus's bodily resurrection from the grave. Those are all important things. Then the so next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, more than likely we're going to get a series of good Easter sermons. I like to kind of foil the two. We're going to get it plus it takes me a good week to number 1, get all the emails from people who are submitting nominees for the worst Easter sermon of the year. Two, go through the list and start to whittle it down to those who are contending. Oh, by the way, if you're going to send me an email nominating a particular church or a pastor, for this year's worst Easter sermon of the year, it would truly help me 
if you explain in like three sentences or less why you are nominating this particular um, uh, sermon. That means you need to know something about it. Okay, the the idea is this, it, you know, the reason why this is being nominated is because rather than preaching about Christ and Him crucified, this pastor performed a circus thing and had a and and did a trapeze act with the midget cannons in the eighteen twelve overture, something like that. You know, just let, let just give me a quick summary so that I can kind of whittle it down. Because what I what I notice is is that certain uh, certain nominees kind of all fit into certain types of errors. So I try to mix it up a little bit. Anyway. So that that's the idea. If you're going to send me the email, let me know. So so ne- next week we're probably going to get a series of good Easter sermons, very good Easter sermons as I collect up the bad Easter sermons for this year's contest and then starting starting a week and a day after Easter, there will be five there will be no light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Can you believe if we do a light edition, the light edition will uh, that week will will only have the bad Easter sermon. So, um just want to let you know, you you need you kind of have to brace yourself for this. And so, what I strongly recommend for the week after Easter, not the 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 week and it's like one week and one day, you know, the the broadcasting week the week after. Uh, the the week after Easter. Does that make any sense? Anyway, bendy straws, padding, duct tape, tinfoil pyramid hats, um, adult beverages with the caveat you don't want to abuse the gift. I mean, anything that you you protect you from the really bad preaching that it is you're going to be experiencing. And I mean, in the past, in years past, I you know I we've had you know Joel Osteen win. I think we had Rob Bell win one year. Um, you know, I'd, I'd have to go back and see who won last year. I thought for sure Bill Johnson was going to win last year, and then somebody eked him out at the end, and which I which actually kind of surpro- surprised me because I truly, you know, I was actually kind of pulling for Bill Johnson last year. But anyway, so that's the idea. It's politically incorrect. It causes weeping and gnashing of teeth, but it makes a good point. And the point is this: pastors, you're supposed to be preaching about Christ every Sunday, triply so triply so on resurrection sunday and so you know it's it's a good way of kind of i consider it one of those like major measurements as to whether or not your pastor and your church is really about preaching christ or if they're off in bizarro world okay because it sticks out like a sore thumb on 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 easter it sticks out like a sore thumb on the on the sunday that we recognize and celebrate christ's bodily resurrection from the grave if your pastor is out there and he's not preaching Christ, instead he's basically teaching you that the Easter Sunday reminds us of how God wants to resurrect the dead dreams in your life. You know, and now is the time for you to boldly and bravely believe that this is your time for your resurrection. Uh, you need to leave that church immediately, and I mean seriously. I mean, it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. It's a, it's one of those bellwethers, uh, you know, one of those watershed type of things here. If your pastor can't preach about Christ on Easter or refuses to do so, you know, you've got a big, 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 big problem uh, with that church and that pastor. And it's, it's just one of those things, you know. Um, I, I consider it kind of the uh, the emperor's new clothes moment. Okay, that's how I look at it. Um, you know, if your pastor's out there parading around in his birthday suit, that's the metaphor 
on Easter Sunday, <laughs> yeah, you know there's something seriously wrong. So anyway, that's the idea. If you want to participate and nominate somebody here every year, my email box gets flooded with nominees. So the idea, again, subject of the email is Easter Sermon Nominee. You can put it in all caps if you want that to help make it stand out. And then three sentences or less as to why that sermon should be considered for the worst Easter sermon of the year for uh, for the year 2012. And then I need a link. You know, that helps, too. You know, they'll say, I think this one needs to be nominated, and then don't send me the link, you know, because if I can't find the sermon, I can't review it and preview it and then consider it for, you know, consideration. So there you go. Anyway, so that's what we're going to do uh, for not next week. Next week, it's all good sermons, on, you know, from pastors who are preaching Christ and Him crucified for our sins on Resurrection Day. The week after that, the, yeah, um, like I said, take all the proper precautions necessary to protect your brainwaves from what it is that you're going to experience. I promise it's going to be a train wreck. And, you know, one of the things I've learned is that past nominees are, they're a little slow on the uptake. And uh, uh, there's been several people whom I've strongly considered putting into the mix every year, but we try to keep, you know, keep a little bit of diversity there. Anyway, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've got a uh, I got a weird story. Uh, Rick Joyner, Morning Star Ministries. Apparently, he's got, he's got a, an article that he's published entitled "The Supernatural: Separating the Good Weird from the Bad Weird." This is from the man whose church brought us the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. Um, have you heard that um, that Marty Python sketch, the Holy Ghost hokey pokey? I'll play it today for you uh, during the first break. But uh, yeah, that was from Morningstar. Um, that's you know so weird that we got uh, Rick Joyner claiming that he can separate the uh, the the good supernatural uh, from the bad weird supernatural. I don't think he really knows how to distinguish that. And to help further uh, make the point, we're going to be playing uh, audio from a video of a uh, something said by the apostle Chuck Pierce. Uh, uh, so we're going to be doing a little bit of a Dominionist update today. Chuck Pierce, uh, he was recently at Morningstar. In fact, this is just a little over a month ago. And when he was at Morningstar, he just rattled off a whole series of nonsensical statements like I've never heard him before. Ever, I mean, this was this hit a whole new level of nonsensicalness. Uh, <laughs> so, and, you know, but again, this is all kind of making the point that Rick Joyner over there at uh, Morningstar has has an article trying to teach us how to separate the good weird from the bad weird when it comes to the supernatural. So we'll take a look at that, and then I've got a news story that is not, and I need to say it again and again and again: is not, is not, is not an April Fool's joke. When and the problem is, is the news story hit the Christian Post yesterday, so it has one of those April one timestamps on it, but it's not one of those types of things. It's a bona fide thing. So I went and found the uh, the Fox News affiliate in Ohio that covered the story the day before, so it has a March thirty first uh, timestamp on the date. But uh, the the headline is Ohio pastor puts stripper pole. Next to pulpit in order to talk sex. Yeah. Now this, <laughs> oh, 
Yeah, now here's a fun thing. Okay, so um, back in January of last year, this would be January of 2011, I predicted, and I at the time I made the prediction, I made it perfectly clear, I have no prophetic skills whatsoever if, if by prophetic skills you are you know you are defining that as the ability to see into the future um you know and and you know be able to tell what's coming you know none of that none of that instead all i'm capable of doing is a as a researcher as a guy who spends a crazy amount of time reading, researching, reading, and then researching, and then reading some more, and researching, asking questions, and then researching. I'm able to kind of draw – you think of it as a trajectory, okay? You can begin to kind of plot out where things are going by drawing – you know, connecting dots, okay? And you say, okay, this dot goes to this dot, this dot goes to that dot. And the missing dot, you sit there and go, well, there's no dot here yet, but at the rate that the church is going, it's gonna, it has a trajectory that's, it's gonna, it's gonna get to that place. So back in January of last year, I basically put it out there that within, I said in January of last year, within 24 months, within 24 months of the time I said that on the air, that, uh, that there would be some secret driven church out there that would use a stripper pole or pole dancing, you know, in a service. Yep. And, uh, well, I have been proven to be right. Now, well, there was a close call, I think, last year. Uh, they, they had that pole dancers for Jesus thing, but they didn't actually bring it into church. <laughs> this pastor in Ohio, he brought it into <clears throat> church. Anyway, so we're going to be taking a look at that story. Um, I got a Matt Chandler story. Matt Chandler warns pastors of danger of seeking success. Now, here's the deal. Last week, we talked about the fact that Matt Chandler is now the president of Acts 29. And Mark Driscoll has not taken a demotion. Mark Driscoll, Driscoll still has a very prominent role on the board of directors. Okay, That being the case, I'm going to begin to start asking a question. And I think it's an important question that... Matt Chandler does actually need to answer, okay? As the new president of Acts 29 Network, my question to Matt Chandler is this. Can a pastor who has a congregation that is a member of the Acts 29 Network, can that pastor publicly criticize and disagree with what happened at Elephant Room 2 and still be considered a member in good standing in the Acts 29 network? That is a question that we need to get the answer to. And so I, I want to know what the policy is. Now, understand that in all organizations, there are things that are called formal policies, and then there are informal policies. And so what happens is, is that if you're a part of an organization, the, what, 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 you know, let's say you work, you know, you work in like the, uh, the cubicle maze at some major corporation, right? Okay. There's a lot of you out there that do. Okay. So you, you commute every day, you know, you get up, you know, at the same time every day, grab your cup of coffee, make sure you download the latest edition of fighting for the faith. You start driving, you make your commute in, there's heavy traffic. You're listening to fighting for the faith. <clears throat> Notice the subliminal uh, advertising for fighting for the faith here. You get to work, you get to your cubicle, you start working, and what happens is is that you know at at your employment place of employment, there is a policy handbook, right? 
These are the policies of XYZ Corporation, and here's the policies that we operate by. Now, so the idea is this, is that you, everybody can point to the formal policies, and the formal policies would say that you can do this, you can't do that, you're expected to do this, the company is expected to do that, here's all this, and here's all that, right? It's all formal. Now, there is a second set of policies that is unwritten, and it, this is in every single organization. Because remember, where two or more are gathered, there is politics. Okay, That being the case, there is a series of unwritten informal policies. Okay, and, you know, and the informal policies would go along the lines of something like this. That guy who works in that cubicle over there, don't mention this sports team or don't mention that employee or don't say anything about this because if you do, then he's going to get upset. And if he gets upset, then, you know, bad things are going to happen. So the idea here is, is that there's formal policies and informal policies. So um, regardless of the fact that there probably isn't a formal written policy that says that pastors in the Acts 29 network um, can't. Uh, be openly critical about the Elephant Room 2, I think that there's an informal policy in place. And my question for Matt Chandler is, is, is he willing to discuss the policy, whether it's formal or informal, and do the right thing regarding that particular policy? That's my question for him. But that's a completely different topic. But I thought, thought since we're going to be talking about Matt Chandler today, I'd bring that up. And then if we have time, I want to get to a Phil Johnson uh, blog post regarding pragmatism. Yeah, hang on a second here. Take two. Yeah, there we go. All right. Talking about pragmatism versus biblical preaching. Some good stuff. And then in hour number two today, we are going to be getting back into our Blackaby series of um, lessons that we've been, you know, that we started last week. Um, from Granger Community Church. Now, this, as bizarre as this gonna, is going to sound, um, I have to actually fast forward a little bit in order to go backwards. You're like, huh? Yeah, I know, I know. It's So what we're going to do is we're going to play audio from week four today. Week four. I, I understand last week we did week one. But you got to understand this. As you as you listen as you walk through the videos at Granger Community Church in their teachings, their Wednesday night adult you know class on Blackaby's experiencing God. Week two and week three were a little light on the actual teaching. It was more or less you know discuss at your table question number such and such from the workbook. Which by the way I have the workbook and uh, and so in order to kind of you know co to continue with a coherent critique of Blackaby's teaching from his book Experiencing God, I got to fast forward to week number four because week number four actually hits like the, something very early in Blackaby's book regarding types of knowledge that we have here. And uh, I'll back up and I'll read some things to you from uh, the workbook itself so that you understand what's going on. So that's what we're going to do today. We've got lots of ground to cover. Make yourself comfortable. And uh, we're going to just dive right in. Here we go. What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and, and the brain. brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of 
the sun. He'll take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overflow the earth. They're Pinky. They're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 Brain. Brain, Brain, Brain. Starve! Gotta love that music. That's our Dominionism update music for those uh, in the New Apostolic Reformation and their attempts at, well, taking over the world. Uh, one of the primary mm, leaders within that movement is a guy by the name of Rick Joyner, Morningstar Ministries. In uh, Charisma Magazine online, you can find this at charismamag.com, he's got an article entitled The Supernatural separating the good weird from the bad weird. And all I can say is, is that, well, <clears throat> uh, Rick Joyner is responsible for bringing um, Todd Bentley back into, quote, ministry and, you know, restoring him. And currently he's got a conference he's doing with himself and Bill Johnson and Todd Bentley and others. And, it, of course, you know, in in the first break today, we'll be playing the uh, the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey um, <clears throat> uh, Marty Python that we did a while ago. So, I mean, I, I don't really think, just in looking at the title here, that Rick Joyner knows how to separate the good weird from the bad weird when it comes to the supernatural. In fact, he's kind of one of the greatest uh, purveyors of the bad weird that there is. I, I just don't have any other way of... Um, explaining it. Anyway, Rick Joyner writes, he says, supernatural means super natural. <laughs> oh, what do you do when somebody starts a, an article off like that? <laughs> oh, boy, that's just deep. Anyway, <laughs> as C.S. Lewis pointed out, almost all of the miracles of Jesus were simply the speeding up of a natural process. Yeah, because, you know, when people die, you're raising them from the dead. That's a natural process. Anyway, and, you know, healing the blind. Yeah, anyway, I don't think he's read much of Lewis anyway. Um, there was never any wine that did not start out as water and go through a process. Jesus just sped up that process. There was never anyone healed that God did not heal through the natural processes he placed in us. But through Jesus and his workers, he sped this up. So that's what Jesus was doing. That blind man would have eventually been healed. Jesus just sped up the healing process. <laughs> Words of knowledge, which is receiving information through the Spirit about someone, is like touching one little cell of the mind of Christ. Really? Okay. That doesn't help me understand it at all. Uh, when, uh, when Jesus looks at something, he knows all that there is to know about that person. And when we, when we look at someone in the spirit, he can give us just a tiny fraction of that information. And it seems spectacular to us. If we, <laughs> if we are given a name, birthday or other details, we're astounded as the person usually is too. Even so, this is not to wow people, but to help them. When we receive a bit of supernatural knowledge like this, if we will not get too excited and keep inquiring of the Lord, he will often give us more. Sometimes he'll give us a word of wisdom. 
so that we know how to use this knowledge to help that person. Again, it's not just about getting the word of knowledge, but about helping the person, the church, or the other entity. Well, see, that explains it. I mean, the Holy Ghost hokey pokey helped people. I mean, people got new knees and, and all that kind of stuff but just by doing the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. So now let's discuss the weird. There is good weird and there's bad weird. But just about everything supernatural is weird to those who are used to living only in the natural realm. So to start operating in this realm, we need to learn to distinguish between the good and the bad. The devil is a master counterfeiter, and we're not going to outsmart him with our own intelligence since he started off smarter than we are and has thousands of years of experience on top of it. However, we have been given the mind of Christ through our whole devotion, uh, though our, therefore our whole devotion is simply to abide in Christ, who has already won and will win every encounter. Yeah, that doesn't. I, um, what's my action step here again? Um, abide in Christ, okay? Um, how do I do that? Anyway, so even so, this is not something we should become arrogant about, and by our pride fall from the place that we've been given. Even the great apostle Paul admitted to having been foiled by Satan. If it could happen to him, I think it could happen to any of us. However. We cannot let the fear of failure control us, but rather faith in Christ, who will cause all things to uh, to work together for us and always leads us in his triumph. If we get distracted and make a mistake, we need to admit it, learn it, learn from it, get up, and then keep going. So that being said, the least likely way that we will get to the way we will get to know the voice of the Lord is to spend too much time studying the enemy and how he tricks people. Aha. Uh-huh. So we are exhorting to we are exhorted to know his schemes, but we should spend far more time and energy seeking to know the Lord's voice than discerning the enemies. We should know the Lord's voice so that so so well that if the enemy tries to interject something, we will pick it up right away and know that it's not our king's voice. You know, funny that you would say that because pretty much every single time I hear anything preached at Morningstar because I'm, you know, because I really have spent really my entire adult life studying, marking, inwardly reading, digesting, translating, and really spending time necessary to learn God's word, the Bible. Every time I hear something that comes out of Morningstar, I pretty much know right away that that's the voice of Satan and not the voice of God. Um, yeah, see if any of this sounds like the voice of God to you. Here is um, the Apostle Chuck Pierce of the New Apostolic Reformation. This guy isn't just a prophet. No, 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 no. Chuck Pierce, he's one of the 12 apostles. And they've got the whole world chopped up into these different apostolates. And, you know, he's one of the new apostolic apostles of the New Apostolic Reformation, you know, so that they can usher in the new kingdom. See if any of this sounds even remotely like anything like, well, God's voice that we hear in the Bible. Here's Chuck Pierce. This year, if I could say something to you, we're in between. We have left 2011, 11 meaning chaos and confusion. Turn and tell somebody I'm glad that's ending. We're moving in. Now, hear me carefully. Now, this is Chuck Pierce at the Prophetic Insight for 2012. He's at Morningstar. It's Thursday, February 23rd, 2012. See if any of this makes any sense to you. I don't think we're there yet. But we're moving into 
new administration. That's what 12 means. Mm, yeah. We're moving into uh, something that will produce a new order that our life needs and our individual life and our corporate life needs and our territory needs, a new kingdom order. So we're in between 11 and 12. Why do I... Yeah, then why does my calendar say 12 on it, not, not you know, between 11 and 12, like 12, 11 and three quarters or something like that? Say that because in God's calendar, when we read from the covenant of the Word of God, you see... All revelation is based around the feast times. And so the Lord began to move us out of confusion and chaos in September. And by Passover, he's moving us into a new order. Turn to Really? Wow. Yeah. Doesn't sound anything like what I read in the Bible. Somebody and say, I'm going to keep going till I get there. <laughs> now... It's a time to see if you don't watch the signs, you will miss much of the direction God is giving you personally to come into the new order that he has for you and your family, your ministry, and what he's doing right now. All right, yeah, so I got to watch for the signs so that I can go into the new order because it doesn't matter if that God's calendar flips from 11 to 12. I got to look from the, for the signs so that I can, you know, be part of that new order. So you have to watch signs. Got it. Supernatural signs. Mm. We have crossed into a supernatural season. I feel like we're entering into... The year where we are seeing in a way that we will be able to project into the next eight years. So I can see in a way to project into the next eight years. Yep, I have no idea what that means. And see a glory realm manifest that we've not seen manifest in the last 400 years. You know, I wasn't here 400 years ago, so I, you know, it's not like I, you know, I'm missing it or anything like that. Um, what are you talking about? But it's requiring God's people to see. See what? And in these next eight years, what he's going to start doing now, today, that will increase over the next several months is giving us the ability to see. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I see. No, wait, wait, maybe I don't. Yeah, I'm confused. Something supernatural is going to start happening in you. Can hardly wait for that. Now. Yeah, okay. Today. Wow, yeah. You came together that you could see the future. Really? Yeah. That's what this gathering's about. Huh. So I could see the future. All of a sudden, the past and the present 
must let go of you for a moment. Uh-oh. So if the past and the present let go of me for a moment, would I then like go through some kind of a time free fall then? Or would the future be there to, you know, to pick me up? Just, you know, I'm curious. And when that lets go of you for a moment, yeah. there's a moment you see. We're at... So, so when that lets go of me for a moment, there's a moment that I could see as I'm free-falling in, into time. Some divine crossroads, some intersection in time, and in the midst of it, you're seeing different directives of how to move and yet you're going to have to see clearly how to go yeah but i won't be able to see unless the past and the present let go of me for a moment so that i can free fall and then see so i mean this isn't kind of my i don't need to do this they have to let go of me first but i don't know if i want the past or the present to let go of me i but then again the question is how exactly are they holding on to me again you're seeing different directives over how to move, yeah, yeah. but you're going to have to see clearly which way to go. I, I can't even think clearly about what you're saying. How am I supposed to see clearly? So what you're going to have to do is stand at the crossroads yeah. and not get caught in Jesus yesterday and today. Uh-huh. So I, I got to get caught in the crossroads, but not get caught up in Jesus yesterday and today. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm drawing a complete blank there. I have no idea what these words mean. But align yourself yeah. so Jesus, the saying tomorrow, opens your eyes. Uh-huh. Right. So I got to... Okay. And shows you the path to turn on. Yeah. See, once you do that, there's going to be an activation. Things are going to start moving like this for you. So there'll be an activation when I do that. Okay. You're going to say, oh, my goodness, it was a moment. I took a breath. I saw and I moved. And you're going to say, I'm not sure where I'm going, but I knew the moment and I made this turn. Uh, I'm supposed to turn. Okay. See, that's where we are right now. Yeah, I think that qualifies as the weird supernatural rather than the good supernatural. Could, I mean, did, were any of you able to make any heads or tails of any of that? Because I'm, I, I rather than you know feeling the past and the present letting go of me, I feel sanity l- releasing its hold on me as I slip into the future of crazy. So, you know, I, I think I need to go detox after that because, you know, my, my left ankle um, is stepping in the crossroads on the future of Jesus. And, you know, this, this could be a bad thing. So I, I need to go and adjust some things so that I can abide properly in the good supernatural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Circus Church, unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances and the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit, and we saw 12 people healed the work of knowledge and 40 healed during the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. Guys, okay, do a little Holy Ghost hokey pokey. Can you lead it? All right, Brian's gonna lead us in the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. You can put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you dig your right hand out. You put it in and you shake it and you shake it all about. You put your left. with the arms uh, nothing nothing real effect but then as soon as i just start we start doing the whole we'll put your left foot in your right foot in both of my knees you know one at a time i could just feel all of a sudden it's like there was no pain i said you said start checking yourself i was just squatting down. that's awesome thank you lord for new knees in jesus name come on come on um, I've had back problems most of my life, and a couple of we- about a week ago, my back had gone out, and it was somewhat better, but it was still sore. Uh, 
up until today, and when we did that hokey pokey and she came up and testified, all the pain went. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, any church that would do the Holy Ghost hokey pokey is uh, engaged in the bad weird in the realm of the, it's not supernatural, it's more like deception. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, and let me thank you for your support. From the Christian Post, headline reads, Ohio pastor puts stripper pole next to pulpit to talk sex. And no, this is not, is not, is not an April Fool's joke. Uh, Anugra Kumar of the Christian Post writes, he says, With a bed and a stripper pole placed next to his pulpit, a pastor in Ohio is all set to begin a series of sermons on sex and relationships beginning Sunday. Ready to start a new sermon series called The Battle of the Sexes, Pastor Mike Scruggs at the Light of Word Ministries in White Oak, Ohio, has put a stripper pole, video games, and sports equipment on one side of the pulpit representing what men desire. On the other side, he has set up a bed with candles, teddy bears, roses, and a bottle of wine to depict what women want. On all Sundays in April, Scruggs will share about best practices in the bedroom. Really? He's going to share best practices. So so we're going to be talking technique. Okay. On all Sundays in April, Scruggs will share about best practices in the bedroom, keeping intimacy alive, and the need to build and maintain trust. 
Now, I want to point something out here. <laughs> Pastor Scruggs, at this point, is somebody who may be a candidate in this year's worst Easter sermon contest. Why? Because he's what is what is he going to be preaching about on Easter? What's he going to be preaching about on Resurrection Sunday next Sunday? Not Jesus and him crucified and raised again bodily from the grave. No, Pastor Scruggs will be preaching about best practices in the bedroom. So, see, this is exactly what I mean. Okay, this this guy is at this point. In the running, he may actually make the cut. It, I've got to preview the sermon, though. But see, this this is a guy who probably should have his sermon reviewed as part of the worst Easter sermon of the year contest. Because rather than preaching about Christ, he's going to be preaching about best practices, techniques, if you would, in the bedroom, keeping intimacy alive, and the need to build and maintain trust. Quote, right now we're having single people having too much sex. And married people not having enough, he told Fox 19. The pastor will also encourage married couples in the church to take the experiment based on the book Sex Experiment, Seven Days to Lasting Intimacy with Your Spouse by Texas-based pastor Ed Young, calling on married couples to have sex for seven straight days to see, quote, amazing results lasting far beyond the week. <clears throat> Who <laughs> Sounds like a commercial for Viagra or Cialis. Anyway, who who better than the church to really bring clarity to this? What I call this holy concept that's been ordained by God, fellow pastor Ennis Tate was quoted as saying, on Friday, Pastor Scruggs held a pre-kickoff service for singles, which drew a packed house. We tried to make it relevant, straightforward. We don't want to sugarcoat anything. WLWT.com quoted him as saying, we talk about sex, we talk about drugs, we talk about faith, we talk about relationships and things that people are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, but apparently they don't talk about Jesus. <clears throat> Weird for a Christian church. Anyway, Scruggs admits that some could be could get offended by his message. We push the envelope. That's true, he said. Don't take it out of context. Some people say, he's going to hell. He's wrong. We want to talk about it. We we don't want them to guess at it, some, assume it's wrong. It's right. We, we want to talk about it. And then he reminds his critics his mother is a member of his church, and she approves of his message. Well, oh, so see that? There you go. So if you were tempted to critique Pastor Scruggs, uh, for um, for talking about sex rather than Jesus and putting a stripper pole um, in you know on stage there. Um, well, his mom approves of his messages, and so uh, yeah, here's here's the TV coverage how this went down at Fox 19 out there in Ohio. Uh, here, listen in. It's estimated that up to 20% of American couples have a virtually sexless marriage, meaning they're only sexually intimate about 10 times a year. So beginning April 1st, the pastor here at Light of the World Church will kick off as... And yet 100% of everybody who's currently living are all sinners in need of a Savior. Weird. I mean, if you're going to just play the percentages, you'd think he'd preach Christ and him crucified for our sins. You know what I'm saying? series of sermons on sex, love, and relationships. Right now, we have, you know, single people having too much sex and married people not having enough sex. 
Pastor Mike Scruggs says he's encouraging single people to abstain from sex while leading married couples in what he calls a sex experiment. We're getting them to, you know, commit to a date night every month. We have uh, daily prayer, daily reading. Uh, but the big kicker is having seven consecutive days of sex with one, with one another. Scruggs has set up a bed and even a stripper pole in the church to make his point. It's a subject that Pastor Ennis Tate says is appropriate for the pulpit. Who better than... Yeah, because, yeah, you know, stripper poles are so appropriate. We continue the church to really bring clarity to uh, this, uh, what I call this holy uh, concept that has been ordained by God. But admittedly frowned on by more conservative churches. And I think sometimes we are hesitant to talk about it or reluctant to talk about it because people still view it as taboo. They view it as a worldly subject matter. And one local sex therapist says marital intimacy can be complicated. Often then we have to get into relationship issues instead of sexual issues because he needs to help more or actually do his share around the house in order to find more time for sex and, and also to alleviate her of the burden so she can have more energy. Pastor Scruggs is expecting a full house on Sunday, but for those who find the subject matter a little too racy, he suggests they find another church. Yeah. On the north side, I'm... I, I think everyone should take his advice. Find another church, period. By the way, you know, here's the deal. I said this was going to happen, <laughs> and I'm not a prophet. I claim no supernatural abilities whatsoever. None. Um, Yeah, I claim total natural abilities. That's, in fact, so I, I don't even use any, like, you know, chemical enhancing products to help with my mental capacities. So <laughs> that was a joke. Oh, man. It, this is just shameful. It's absolutely shameful. Why? Because rather than preaching the real good news that we have to preach, we are off in bizarro world, all in the name of building a big church. we got to build a big church. I know what we'll do is we'll have a sex experiment and put a stripper pole in church. That'll bring them in. Yeah. Um, and then they'll go to hell because they will never be confronted with their sins and the good news that Christ died for our sins. And calls us to repent and to be forgiven. I mean, what I mean, what a great Jesus they believe in. He, he's I mean, the Jesus they believe in is all about giving them best practices, techniques, if you would, to make things better in the bedroom. <clears throat> also from the Christian Post, Brittany Smith writes headline: uh, Matt Chandler warns pastors of dangers of seeking success. Evangelical pastor Matt Chandler has been disturbed by what he's been hearing or sensing from pastors lately, uh, and that is their search for success through the size of their churches and the growth of their platforms. In a post featured on the Resurgence.com website this week, Chandler, who leads the Village Church in Texas, bluntly stated that such a goal is hollow and is dangerous. Quote, if your hope is to, is set on anything other than Jesus, how do you survive when it goes bad? How do you remain passionate and vibrant when no one comes or the baptismal waters are still for long stretches, he posed. Chandler, whose church draws over 10,000 people on multiple campuses, was recently appointed the new president of Acts 29, a church planting network formerly led by Seattle pastor Mark Driscoll. He is also the author of the newly released book, 
the explicit gospel, where he points readers back to Christ and his saving grace. He recalled in his recent post leaving his itinerant speaking ministry to become pastor of First Baptist Church of Highland Village, now known as the Village Church, in 2002. It was a move that many discouraged him from making, quote, I left crowds that were in the thousands and finances that more than provided for my family to go to a small 160-person church that cut my salary in half, he noted. And he didn't become a small church pastor because he had a grand vision for growing a dynamic church. Rather, I came to the village because I thought by doing so, I would get to see more of Jesus, experience more of him, sense more of him, see more of me die, more of my flesh perish, the old man in me lose more power, etc., he is the great end that I am after. Quote, what, or rather, who is the goal, asked Chandler, who is well known for his gospel-centered preaching. Quote, I love preaching the gospel, and I love planting churches, but I do those things because in them there is this unbearable weight of his presence, this crushing majesty that makes me want to cry, sing, and scream all at the same time. But he's disturbed that many pastors have, quote, made the goal something else altogether. Chandler said that to avoid the consequences of this idolatry of attendance, numbers, and fame, the goal and focus of the church has to be on Christ. Just because people do the work of God does not guarantee them success, he emphasized. He cited examples from the Bible of men who loved God and were obedient to him, even though success wasn't guaranteed and it ultimately cost them their lives. Quote, Moses spent his whole life with grumbling whiners and dies without getting to walk into the promised land. Peter was reportedly crucified upside down. Paul was killed in Rome after he spent his life with thorn intact, being beaten, rejected, lost at sea, consistently dealing with people coming in behind him and destroying what he'd built, Chandler pointed out. There is no way to survive when things go wrong if the hope of individuals or the church is set on anything other than Jesus. But if Jesus is the goal and the pursuit rather than a definition of success, you will find your faith sustained, Chandler stressed. He summed it up with the Bible verse from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul writes, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people." especially of those who believe. How much do you want to bet Pastor Matt Chandler will not make the cut this year for the worst Easter sermon of 2012? How much do you want to bet on Sunday, the Sunday coming up, Pastor Matt Chandler will be preaching about Christ, him crucified and bodily raised again from the grave. Too bad we won't be hearing that from Pastor Scruggs. All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back working our way through the Blacker Bee series taught at Granger Community Church. You don't want to miss it. We'll be back, right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Ah! 
your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. This is our normal sermon review time, so I will play the sermon review music, but this is week number two of us working our way through the teaching series at uh, Granger Community Church on Blackaby's book, Experiencing God. And here, here. That's my workbook. I've got a copy of the workbook so that, you know, I can follow along with them there. Here, let's cue up the music here. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service, although this is not a sermon. Uh, Today we're going to be listening to D.C. Curry. He's one of the teaching folk there at Granger Community Church. Uh, From week four of Granger's midweek teaching series through Henry Blackaby's book, Experiencing God. Now, I'm looking at their uh, their workbook here, and what I need to do here, the reason I'm going to go to week four rather than uh, week two is because there's not a lot of content in week two and three from the Granger series. Um, if you remember last week, I demonstrated how Blackaby completely mangles the Gospel of John chapter 5, the the Gospel of John chapter 5, and seems to think that he understands the hows of what Jesus did there, setting an example for us, that somehow Jesus found what God was doing in the world and then joined God the Father in that work, which we'll be talking about kind of the pillar thing today, you know, the, the quintessential center of the Blackaby teaching are what what is called the seven realities of experiencing God. We will be talking about that today, but D.C. Curry doesn't talk about that per se. In fact, he talks about something early on in Blackaby's book, and that has to do with kind of this epistemology, epistemology being how you know what you know. And he sets up a very interesting false dichotomy, kind of following the lead of Blackaby, that somehow experiential knowledge is more real or more important than, well, just biblical knowledge. Yeah, you're, you'll understand what I'm talking about here in a second. So let me kill the music. Dun, 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 dun. 
So without any further ado, here's D.C. Curry from week number four at Granger and he, as he's covering Blackaby's book, Experiencing God. Well, I know it's tough to, to transition out of that uh, prayer time. It's weird to have a time limit on your prayer, isn't it? It's like, first of all, I admire you guys who can pray for three minutes and just bring the kingdom because it takes me about two and a half minutes to ramp into my prayer. I'm, I'm, I'm from the South. I'm real long-winded about my prayers. So just about two minutes in, I start feeling good. Like, oh, I'm finna, I'm really going to tell God what I feel right now. And then it's like, oh, then you hear this. One minute. What is, what is that? What is that in the middle of your prayer? Y'all give me, I'm in my dorm room and I'm going, and you hear one minute. Like God's going, hey, you got one minute to tell me. So like, really, let's get it. It's like, I'm sorry. You guys can pray after this time is over too. So <laughs> I just, I have no way, other way to transition that. Um, what I'm about to do now is give you kind of a snapshot of where we're going next week. Now, this is like the ultimate cheat sheet, right? Anybody have a professor when they were in school? If you're currently in school, do you have a teacher in school that gives you like a cheat sheet with like all the answers? And when it comes test time, they want you just to regurgitate the answers on the cheat sheet. Anybody had a professor like that or a teacher like that? One. Wow. What school did you guys go to? My goodness. Anyway, I... I'm not that professor. I'm the one who will actually make you frustrated because I'm not going to talk about anything specific that is an answer to any question you'll have next week. I'm the professor that will basically get your mind going a thousand and one different ways and then expect you to know the actual answer when it comes test time. You guys excited? I'm excited. All right, here we go. <laughs> I want to start by doing something. I want to, I want to pull the pace back a little bit because I'm... I, I like to talk fast. I get really excited. I got a little bit of energy. I want to pull the pace back a little bit because when I looked over what we're going to be talking about next week, what you'll be going over next week, I saw a thread that ran throughout the course of the whole entire week that was absolutely essential for us to get and to grasp and to understand so that we can actually experience everything that God has for us that week. And here it is. I want you to consider the condition of your heart. Now, I know this is counterintuitive. This will come up in the study a little bit, but consider the condition of your heart because I'm going to lay out some of the macro themes, the big themes that you'll be um, walking through next week. But here's the deal. If the condition of your heart isn't in the right place, you will absolutely miss the core of everything that's trying to be said this week. Now, if you notice in the seven weeks... Now, this is important because I'll tell you what's missing here. A clear teaching about how Christ regenerates us and gives us a new heart. Um, scripture tells us that all human beings by nature are born dead in trespasses and sins. And Jesus himself says, out of the heart comes all kinds of sinful and wicked thoughts, murder, theft, adultery. I mean, you name the list. All of the All of those sins have their genesis within our heart. This is one of the reasons why Jesus went so hard out against the Pharisees and he called them whitewashed tombs because they thought they could really understand how obedience was achieved. And it's not that they had a, a, a high view of the law. They actually had a low view of the law because they actually thought they were pulling it off. Okay. And so rather than really having God's law show you the sin in your life and expose the wickedness, 
they came up with with easy steps to make the law doable so that they could somehow claim that they were being obedient. And Jesus called them out on it and said that they were whitewashed tombs. That approach to, well, obedience is really the, the equivalent of basically putting a veneer on a casket. It's still a casket. And that veneer, even though the, the veneer might look really nice, that uh, the ultimately you're still full of all kinds of sinful, evil wickedness. So this kind of when people and evangelicals in particular start talking about, oh, we need to change our hearts. Um, we need our hearts changed. And, and, you know, listen, you know, we need to have our heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. Our hearts need to be circumcised by Christ. This is not an operation that we can do on ourselves. When when you have heart surgery, do you do it to yourself? No, you have to have it done to you. So we've got a problem here, and that is is that all of these become imperatives. You've got to have a good heart or you're going to miss out on what God wants to say to you. Well, how do I take my dead heart and make it alive? You see, the problem here is that what's missing here is true faith and the obedience that comes out of faith. This is works righteousness that we're hearing, and not only that, it's mystical works righteousness. That's kind of what's at the core of Blackerby here. Let's continue, though. There's a point that requires a different level of intentionality. God's at work all the time. God invites you into this amazing relational opportunity with him. And then you kind of hear the language there. God's at work all the time, and he's inviting you into this intentional relational opportunity with him. Now, let's kind of fill in what it, what it is that is kind of missing here, because we can't quite get it unless we uh, we get it from the book itself. And I'm not going to teach it from Blackaby's uh, hardcover book. I'm actually going to teach it from the workbook that the folks at Granger are working their way through. Day number two, I'm going to just do a little bit of recap here. Day number two in this first section of Experiencing God is entitled, Jesus is Your Model. And let me read a little bit here. During this course and throughout your life, you will have times when you will want to respond to situation based on your own experiences or your own wisdom. Such an approach will get you in trouble. This should be your guideline. Always go to the Bible and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth of your situation to you. Look to what God says and how he works in the scriptures. That's kind of the key there. Look to what God says and how he works in the scriptures. That's the problem in Blackaby is that Blackaby claims to be able to know the how God is working. As a result of it, the, this is what this book is. This is a how book. you know. But the problem is, is that nobody's taught these hows until Blackaby came along. Nobody in Christian history taught these hows. These hows are all brand new, and they have their origin in Blackaby, who somehow discovered the hows. But anyway, make your decision and evaluate your experiences based on biblical truth. When you study the scriptures, do not base your decision on one isolated verse or story. Look to see how God generally works throughout the scriptures. When you learn how God has consistently related to people throughout history, you can expect him to work in a similar way with you. Your experience is valid only as it is confirmed in the scriptures. 
I never deny anyone's personal experience. I always reserve the right, however, to interpret it according to what I understand from the scripture. At times, individuals get upset with me and say, I don't care what you say. I've experienced this. I kindly respond. I do not deny your experience, but I question your interpretation of what happened because it is contrary to what I see in God's word. Our experiences cannot be our guide. Every event in your in your life must be understood and interpreted by the scriptures for the God revealed in scripture does not change. Now, this is kind of an important piece to all of this, okay? It's because um, the seven, how, did he put, how does he put this here? Hang on a second here. The seven realities of experiencing God are these, okay? These are the seven realities. Number one. God is always at work around you. That's reality number one. Reality number two is that God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and is personal. <clears throat> and God invites you to become involved with him in his work. That's reality three. Reality number four is God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible prayer, circumstances, and the church to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways, okay? And the graphic for that is, well, you having a burning bush experience. It's the picture of the burning bush, okay? So God's going to speak to you, but he's going to speak to you through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, um, the church to re and, the, and the church to reveal himself and his purposes to you. Number five, God's invitation... For you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. Six, you must make adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. And number seven, then you come to know know God by, by experience as you obey him, and he accomplishes his work through you. Okay, now, here's the deal. These seven realities are the heart of Blackaby's teaching, okay? So uh, God's work, relationship, invitation, God speaks, crisis of belief, adjust, you need to adjust, and then you obey and experience God. Got it? And as, as he accomplishes his work through you. So here's the deal. How come um, these seven realities were never taught in all of Christian history until Blackaby came along? And discovered them. See, because when he reads the Bible, he seems to think he can understand how God works in people's lives because he sees patterns, you know, from different story to story to story to story. And so the thing is, is that God speaks to you through your experience, through circumstances, through what's going on and all this kind of stuff. But the Bible never, ever in clear, unambiguous terms teaches these seven realities for experiencing God. You can't find it in the teachings of the church fathers. It's never confessed in a creed. Um, none of the church councils early in Christian history discuss the seven realities of experiencing God. No, they just show up on the scene, well, really recently. Really, really, really recently. And so that should already alert you to the fact that we've got a problem here. So the next piece of this is is that is that, well... Blackaby claims that God's going to speak to you through your experiences, but then that leads to an interpretation problem. How do you interpret what God is saying to you in, well, your circumstances and in the experiences that you have? Well, you, you kind of have to look at the Bible. 
But in order to confirm or deny whether or not what God is saying is so that you can interpret it rightly, you have to learn how to see patterns of how God has worked. How, the how. But where in the Bible does it teach these hows? You understand what I'm saying? So um, and so listen to these true and false questions. Uh, so you either answer these true or false. I can, I, I can trust my experiences as an effective way to know God and follow God. I would say false. Um, B, I should always evaluate my experiences based on the truths I find in God's word. I would say, I guess true, but yeah, you know, I, there's something weird there. Um, I, I may get distorted understanding of God if I do not check my experiences against the truths of scripture. Uh huh. Um, I can trust God to work in my life similarly to the way I see him working throughout the scriptures. False. Absolutely false. No way. Yet the, the correct answer there is supposedly true. Uh-huh. Statements B, C, and D are true. Okay, so I can trust God to work in my life similarly to the ways I see him working throughout the scriptures? Yeah. I mean, really. I, so I could look at the story of Moses and I can expect God to work in my life a similar way to the way he worked in Moses' life. I can look at the way God worked in the life of Joshua and I can expect him to work in a similar way in my life. I mean, how are we defining terms at this point? So we've got a real problem. And so the idea here is, is that um, you then are to look at these stories and see how God worked and with the expectation that God's going to work the same way he's worked in these other people's lives. He's going to work the same way in your life. That comes back then to the Jesus example, okay? which is supposedly found in that passage from last week, John chapter 5, verses 17 and 19 through 20, which reads, My father is always at his work to this very day. I, too, am working. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do not, He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show you even greater things than these. That supposedly is the Jesus example, noting this, that one, the father has been working right up till now. Two, now the father has me working. That's his translation, uh, your interpretation of the passage. Three, I do nothing of my own initiative. Four, I watch to see what the Father is doing. Five, I do what I see the Father doing. Six, the Father loves me. Seven, he shows me everything that he's doing. So this, and Blackaby says, this model applies to your life personally and also to your church. It is not a step-by-step approach for knowing it. It is not a step-by-step approach for knowing and doing God's will. It describes a love relationship through which God accomplishes his purposes. And I sum it up in this way. Watch to see where God is working and then join him. Okay? So that forms the basis then of of those seven realities. Okay? That supposedly this passage teaches, you know, the, the basis of this relationship. Find what God is doing and then join him. But the Bible never says that. Blackaby is the first guy to figure this out. Why? Because he's seeing things in the scripture, well, that well, no one else has seen. He's apparently seeing the secret how-to steps to being able to do the same things that Jesus did, or that Moses did, or whatever. So that's why when you hear uh, D.C. Curry here talking about God the Father being at work, and we need to discover what God is doing that's all part of this, okay? But again, I come back to this idea. 
This is a this is based on a misreading, a bad, very bad misreading of John chapter 5. And nowhere in Scripture are the seven realities of experiencing God ever taught. They're nowhere taught. Blackaby claims to have figured out the hows of, of how God worked in the life of Moses and how he worked in the life of Jesus and all this kind of stuff. And that's the seven realities. But that's some really, really bad, bad reading of the text because nowhere do you see Peter teaching about the seven realities? Nowhere do you see Paul teaching the seven realities? Nowhere do you see Jesus teaching the seven realities or any prophet or Moses or any of those guys? Nowhere are the seven realities of experiencing God taught ever until Blackaby comes along. We continue, though. Way down a little bit. God speaks, and then there's this adjustment. There's this crisis of belief. There's all this stuff going on, right? But there's a point in the process of experiencing God that you can completely miss if our hearts aren't in the right place. And some of the macro themes for this coming. So you can understand the seven realities, but if your heart's in the wrong place, well, then you're not gonna you're not gonna have the the the, the right experience. Are things like no God. It's one of the macro big categories that you'll be talking about on one of the days. And knowing God is huge. And there's two different ways to know God, right? You can know God in your head and you can know God in your heart. And we have this thing in us that round about this time in this experience in God study that begins to happen, right? Because God begins to do a little bit of heart surgery on us, right? And sometimes when we feel that heart surgery, we have a natural tendency to protect ourselves. This is why relationally, when we get hurt by a friend, relationally, or by a spouse, or by a brother, or a sister, or a parent, when we get hurt relationally, there's a tendency in us to protect ourselves and to cover up. When things get a little bit uncomfortable, we shell up, and it's okay. That's a great protective instinct because we don't want to be hurt. I want to suggest to you that as we're experiencing God, and as it applies to the nature of God, not to shell up, to do the reverse, open up your heart to God and allow him to do his work, because I believe that's why we're engaging the study in the first place. So that God can So you need to just open up your heart to God so that you can experience God because if you close your, yourself off you're not going to even be participating for the reason that God is having us do this study apparently. This is a form of manipulation. Some heart surgery on us so that we can experience him, so that we can go out and live the new normal and share with people who need it desperately in this community. And in order for us to know God, it has to go from our head to our heart. And we have to resist the Now listen carefully to this epistemology. This epistemology is how you know what you know. Temptation to protect ourselves from the molding and shaping that God will do with our lives. Because if he's the potter and we're in his hands, right? He's going to be pressing on us a little bit. He's going to be saying, here's an area where you can adjust your life and you may not like it because it may change everything about your day. But if you want to follow me and you want to experience me and you want to know me, you want to serve me, you want to love me, it might require that level of intentionality in that area of your life. As God molds and shapes, I want to, I want to ask you to consider the condition of your heart. And I want to ask you to just to continue to open yourselves up because as you experience... So the way I get over a bad heart is just open myself up. Really, is that what the Bible presents as a solution to a bad heart? God more and more and more 
It can only happen in increasingly amounts if your heart is open to the things that God wants to continue to do. This is way more than knowing and learning knowledge about God. Did you hear that statement? This is way more than learning knowledge about God. Experiencing God is about the actual experience. It's not about learning something new, memorizing more verses. This is about the nature and condition of our life and our heart. What did Jesus say? This isn't about learning or memorizing verses. Important thing about us, the condition of our heart. It's the wellspring of life. Everything flows out of our heart. So as you approach this week, consider the condition of your heart as I am. A hard heart is often hard to mold. A protected heart is often hard to get to. And God will take initiative to mold and shape your heart. And I'm Now, I want to point something out. Notice all these things he's saying God's going to do. God's going to, God's going to, God's going to. Has he read a single verse that backs up even one of these assertions? Not even one verse. These He's just basically, well, telling us about supposedly what he's learned about God from his experience. Notice how his experience now is being preached as if it's the very word of God. Asking you, I'm begging you, open your heart to him and allow him to have his way. He is the master surgeon. He can do anything. He is so precise. He knows exactly what to do, exactly what to say, exactly who to send into your life at exactly the right time so that you can have fullness with him. Well, that's great. And all. Um, you got any passages in the Bible that say any of these things? So I'm begging you, open your hearts to God, consider the condition, because when you do that, these macro themes that are coming up next week come to life. Things like knowing God. It's huge. And I can know God in here all day, but until you know it in here, that changes everything. Yeah, he pointed, he says, I can know God in here, pointing to his head, but until I know him in my heart, uh-huh. Up in the South where we sing little, um, um, what do you call them, Sunday school songs. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. Can you imagine me as a kid? I was a goofball. Now here's what that song says. Yes, Jesus loves me. For what? For the Bible tells me so. So as a kid, I believed that God loved me purely because the Bible said so. And I walked around going, the Bible says that God loves me. Jesus loves me. God's word says it. Notice the attack against knowing God through the scripture. Right? Because that's what I'm supposed to believe. We go to church and we hear God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And it's true. And we need to say it. There's a community that desperately needs it. There are college campuses that needs it. There are cold. Notice that there's a butt coming. You can just feel it. And in this particular case, the butt is going to erase everything he's saying. That need to know God's love. But it's one thing. There it was. Did you hear it? Yeah, I'm going to back it up because you know I told you there's a butt coming. There's a butt coming. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Bible tells me that God loves me. We go to church and, uh, and the Bible says this and the Bible says that. But he said it really fast. And the purpose of it was to erase everything because the important stuff is not before the but. It's after the but. Right? Because that's what I'm supposed to believe. We go to church and we hear God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And it's true. 
And we need to say it. There's a community that desperately needs it. There are college campuses that needs it. There are cul-de-sacs that need to know God's love. But it's one thing to know because someone said it, get this, it's a whole other thing to know because you've experienced it for yourself. It wasn't until I was a senior in high school till I... Okay, so um, yeah, that, just hearing it from the Bible, that's just one thing. Until you experience it, it's not really knowing it. I knew that God loved me. Because God came into my life in a way that I never, ever experienced. And so knowing in my head was huge. It got me really far down the road. But it wasn't until I experienced God for myself that I actually knew that God loved me. Guys, get the difference? Knowing in your head is huge. But if your heart's in the right place and you can feel it in your heart, it changes the nature of everything about knowing yeah, notice how the experiential knowledge becomes the driver, not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is, well, just mere propositions, head knowledge, if you would. The love of God and actually knowing who God is. And it's how you can stand on a firm foundation and walk out into a work environment or community and know that you are in love with God and that God loves you and God loves the people that are around you. And here's what I want to suggest through this experience in God, that this will propel us out into a world that needs to experience that exact same thing. For far too long, the church has allowed itself to stay cocooned in a box where we feel love, we celebrate love, we celebrate passion, we celebrate and we worship. But there's a community that we should be helping experience that exact same thing in different contexts. And it may not be coming to a box. It may not be watching church online. What if your life helped people experience God? I know I'm preaching hard, guys, but... What if my life helped people experience God rather than, you know, hear the word of God in Scripture for them to have an experience? This is all subjectivity. Everything comes down to the condition of our heart, the nature of our heart, and the intentionality because God, God says when he is lifted up, God will draw every single person to himself when he's lifted up through our lives the way that we... Yeah, that, no, 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 no. When Christ says... That when he is lifted up, he will draw all nations to himself. He wasn't referring to us lifting him up in our lives. He was talking about him being lifted up on the cross. As we try to know him. The second macro theme is worship God. Know God is one of them. And to worship God. It's a condition of our heart. Worship is not a posture. You can walk into church and have a great posture that might outwardly say that I'm experiencing God, but if your heart is far from God, is it actually worship? So apparently all on my own, I can make my heart get closer to God. Okay. I told myself I wasn't going to preach. Trust me, you're not, because this isn't biblical preaching. Matthew 15 8 says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What is it that Jesus is concerned with? Our hearts. To worship God, it's a, it's a posture of your heart, not a posture of your body. And yeah, he was talking about how the Pharisees, their hearts are far from God because they think they're obeying God by keeping his law and putting God in their debt. But they weren't obeying him. They were obeying the traditions of men. You get it? 
They didn't truly have faith. They didn't have true repentance and contrition. Out of that, your body responds. So sometimes people raise their hands. When you begin to worship God, sometimes you need to be on your knees. When you worship God, sometimes you need to be on your face because you recognize and realize who God is. To worship God, your posture that's flowing out of your heart may be to open up your eyes and gaze towards the heavens, looking straight through the ceiling. Have you been in a worship service in a church where you're looking directly through the ceiling into the face of God because it can't be contained by the box you're in? Experiencing God, worshiping God is the posture of your heart, not a posture of your body. There are people all over the world who experience a worship service with a great posture, but their hearts aren't even close to what's happening in the actual service. My prayer is that your hearts are open so that you can experience what God has for you in that context. Love God is another macro theme you'll be studying next week. Loving God is greater than lip service. I wrote this down. I don't know if it's powerful or not. Loving from your head is an inch deep, but loving from your heart will flat out drown you. Have you ever felt... Loving from your head is an inch deep. That's not a Bible teaching at all. Um, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he had answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Hmm. You'll look long and hard in the Bible and completely come up with zero passages that say that loving God with your mind is only an inch deep. This is not scriptural, what we're hearing. This is something very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Why? Because it pits your head against your heart. And the reality is, is that your head needs to be in the driver's seat because your heart needs something to ground it, something objective. The two need to work together. But this teaching pits the two against each other. In order to love God, it's not saying all the right things, doing all the right things, serving all the right way. That's so that means that, you know, saying and believing the right things, that doesn't matter. Happen. Have you ever just felt like this person loves me? Unconditional. No matter what. I do. I know this person's going to love me. This may be a parent. It may be a grandparent. It may be a professor. It may be a guardian. It may be a pastor. It may be a best friend. Yeah, funny thing is that, you know, best friends, guardians, loved ones, my spouse, I wouldn't think they really loved me if they didn't actually believe correct things about me, you know, or didn't take the time to actually get to know information about me that was correct. I think the two go hand in hand. It may be a kid. It may be whoever. But have you ever felt that palpable love that's more than just I'm loved because this is what happens? Notice the dichotomy here. But I'm loved because of who I am? This kind of love 
will flat out overwhelm you. This is the kind of love that God has for us. The kind of love that when it rushes into your life, you can't contain your emotions. When I gave my life to Christ, I was this crazy, wild-eyed kid, and I was just flooding with emotions. And some of that emotion came out in tears. Some of that emotion came out in a certain posture. Some of that emotion just came out with me just singing. But I'm telling you, when God's love comes into your life and you experience it, it is unlike anything that I can even explain. And I know for each of you, it happens differently. This sounds exactly like the same type of argumentation that I heard in Pentecostal churches where they were telling me of my need to speak in tongues. Just let your mind turn off so that you can experience this gift that God absolutely wants for every Christian. Well, no, the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches the very opposite. Same type of argument, pitting subject the subjective and objective against each other and basically overweighting the subjective and downplaying and, in fact, almost browbeating the objective. And it has happened differently for many of you. I see heads nodding, which means people are resonating and understanding what that love is actually like. Here's what I want to suggest. That love that you feel. What would it mean if you could share that love with someone else and reproduce? Yeah, not, not share the gospel, but that experience. This is one step away from Patricia Kingland. That love into the life of someone else. How awesome would it be for people to feel what you feel, the way that you feel it, but the way that God intended them to feel it? Loving God is a condition of the heart. Worshiping God is a condition of the heart. Knowing God. (laughs) My grandma used to say, I know that I know that I know that I know that God is there for me, that God loves me. And this is knowing that I can't even explain because it's like four or five knowings. I'm like, that must be for real. (laughs) I know that I know that I know that I know that I know. But it was just deep. I felt it deep up to deep. I felt her saying it from her soul, not from her head. Not because some song said it was true, but because she actually felt it in her life. Mm, Yeah, like that's more important. Not because she didn't say it from her head. It was only from her heart. Another macro theme for next week. God reveals so much of who he is through our experiences. Not in this word, but through our experiences. Now, this leads to an interpretive problem here. Okay. Um, Do we apply the historical grammatical method for interpreting these experiences of God in our life? Do we allegorize them? What, What interpretive method do we use to properly interpret those experiences as it pertains to God speaking in our lives through them? Hmm? reveals so much about himself through our experiences and through the experiences of those people around us. Think about God's word. So much of God's word is us learning about God through other people's life. Looking at the life of someone else, seeing how God intersects that life, and then drawing a conclusion based on that. No, all scripture is God-breathed. The very words of scripture were inspired. This is not about somebody else's, quote, experience, per se, although their experiences are recorded for us. But God the Holy Spirit caused the very words of Scripture to be inspired so that we can learn from them because God speaks through his word. Right? Sometimes it's God using his word to flat out tell us specifically, this is who I am. I am who I am. 
I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was very clear about who he is and who God is. In God's word, oftentimes we learn about God through the experiences of ourselves and other people. Think about the different stories in the Bible. Apparently everything comes down to experience now. No. Story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think about it. We learn about God as a deliverer, that God is stronger than any political power in any day, in any time, it doesn't matter. That's how strong he is. That's how powerful our God is. We learn about the nature of God and his power over any principality of this world through the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, I'm sorry. That's in the Bible. That's only head knowledge. Looking at a guy like David, looking at a guy like John the Baptist, we learn so much about God through the experiences he's had with people. Here's what I want to suggest to you, that people will learn about God through your experiences in this world. How you, you are a walking Bible. Your life is, well, it's up there with David and Joshua and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Handle situations, how you handle circumstances will teach people about God. I posed this question to our students. I don't know if it was this weekend or a handful of weeks ago. Now, do you notice that the analogy at that point puts your life on par with David, Peter, and all the others? Those, it puts it on the same level, and the same level as far as revelation regarding God, God revealing himself the same way in your life. Where does the Bible say this? Can you imagine if your life right now was being recorded by sources you didn't even know or see to be placed into God's word? If your life right now was being recorded and written down by some people that you didn't know that you didn't see to be placed in God's word, what would your story say about God? crazy to think about all this reality TV we have going on now, right? Where cameras are everywhere in every room and every place always on, which is not really reality TV. It's fake TV, but they're selling it as reality TV, right? Put yourself in God's reality story, the holy Bible of reality television. Oh my goodness. What in the world? Put myself into the Bible. Wow. That do to you. Talk about Narsa Jesus. What would that look like? What would those pages read? Because here's what I believe. We're walking around a world where people are seeing us call ourselves followers of Christ. And it's like the pages of the Bible to them. Your life may be the only Bible that someone ever reads. What would they know about God because of your life? Oh, boy. So we're not really studying the Bible here because that's head knowledge. No, 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 no. We're just going to imagine our lives as somehow being, well, the next epistles added into God's word. So similar to us reading God's word and knowing more about God through the experiences of God's people, the next week will suggest to you that you will learn more about God through your experiences. And I believe most of us probably know that's true in a handful of areas, right? When we went through that one thing, that one time we learned something about God that we didn't know because God showed up in a way that we didn't expect or didn't assume, and God did something that we didn't think he could do, and God proved bigger, stronger, better, faster, smarter than we could ever imagine because that's what he did in that situation. 
through our life experiences, we learn about God if we seek God in those moments, if our hearts are open and tender to the Spirit of God. So you got to make your heart open and tender to the Spirit of God so that you can hear God speaking in your life experiences um, and revealing himself there. When you're hurt, what would it look like to go to God with that hurt and learn something new about God, that God is a comforter? Come on. What would it look like to go to God in times of success and see that God is the provider of any success we could ever have? See, next week, you'll get a chance to study and dive into your experiences as they relate to God and God's story and God's truth in this world. And I pray that over next week that you guys could see God in your circumstances, past and present, and start to lay out for your own life who God is in your life. Lay out in your own life who God is in your life. Oh, boy. Always stand true in who God says he is. God's word will never contradict itself. The way God works in your life will never contradict who he is by his nature and his word. Well, I'm glad you're referencing the Bible, but that's mere head knowledge, remember? Stay in God's word. I'm praying for you guys this coming week. Be praying for me because I know God's going to do something here too. Let me pray for us and then we'll be on our way. Okay, we're done. Now, that's our installment for this week. I know it's short, but I I needed to kind of get this in there because this is what's rolling around in Blackaby. Lip service to the written word of God. Oh, yeah, we got to always check our experiences according to what God's word says. But at the basically at the underlying thing in here, you got a twin authority structure overly weighted on the subjective. Your God is revealing himself in your experiences, and that's better, more important, deeper, deep, way deeper. I mean, because heart head knowledge is an inch deep. You can drown in heart knowledge, way overweighted on the subjective, without any passages that teach this. Nowhere in Scripture. Does it say to turn off your mind or that mere head knowledge is only an inch deep? Scripture tells us to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. It doesn't basically reveal, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Well, that head knowledge stuff, that's only an inch deep. But heart knowledge, yeah, that's more important. He didn't teach this from any passages. And I keep coming back to this point. I'll reiterate it. These seven realities that Blackaby teaches that's really the heart and center of all of this thing, supposedly the how of God works. You know, God's always at work around you, reality one. Two, God pursues you in a continuing relationship that's real and personal uh, three, God invites you to become involved with him in his work. So there's God. God's working around you, and then he's going to invite you into his work. Um, God speaks by the Spirit, the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church to reveal his, himself, his purposes, and his way. Then God's going to speak to you directly, which is going to cause a crisis of belief where you're going to need to make adjustments in your life so that you can join God in what he's doing. And then you come to know God by experience, which is far more important than knowing him from the Bible, as you obey him and he accomplishes his work through you. 
Those are the seven realities. And, you know, this, the, there's an epistemology here. This experiential knowledge, far more important than head knowledge. In fact, head knowledge, that's just not even the important thing. So now we're off on some kind of, you know, spiritual walkabout, if you would, trying to figure out where God's working and expecting God to speak to us. And so that we, you know, he's going to invite us into what he's doing and we've got to make adjustments and obey him so that we can experience him. That's what's going on. But here again, nowhere in the Bible does it teach the seven realities. They're never clearly laid out. Nowhere do you hear Peter, Paul, Jesus, Jude, James talking about the seven realities of experiencing God. Prophet Isaiah never mentioned them. Jeremiah never mentioned them. Moses never taught them. These seven realities didn't exist until Blackaby discovered them. We should tell you that they're not anchored in a real teaching in God's word. Because if God wanted us to know these seven realities, he would have clearly taught them and the church would have always taught them from the beginning. This is not sound biblical doctrine. This is, well, a doctrine that basically opens you up to subjective experiences or mystical experiences that you're supposed to check against the word of God, but you're already reading God's word wrong, as if you can figure out how the hows work. If all you see, if you see a similar pattern to somebody in the in the old, you know, in the Bible, you should assume that God's working in your life the same way He's worked in the other people's life. And oh, and stop throwing those doctrines around. That's just head knowledge. So they reference the Bible, but cut you off from what the Bible teaches, because that's just mere head knowledge. That's only an inch deep, right? You see the trap that's set here in Blackaby's teaching. It's a seductive, subjective. Trap, not based on sound biblical exegesis or hermeneutics. This is a trap that opens you up to basically be taught, well, by your sinful flesh or worse, directly from demons. Because it's all about the experience, right? Yeah, this is really, really bad news. Really bad stuff. All right, we are up at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.